The Way Out Podcast, episode 305. What is your name? My name is Richie Stevens. Richie Stevens, what was your substance of choice or DOC? I guess my favorite thing towards the end were Coke and Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard it phrased that way, but I can relate. Richie, what is your clean and or sober date? Yeah, it's sober on September 1st, 2010. Congratulations, brother, on 12 years and counting of continuous recovery. That's an absolute miracle, brother. Thanks, Charles. Yeah, um, kind of crazy that I did end up getting sober after the way I was living my life for a long time. So if you believe in miracles, I think I definitely am one, you know. Oh, brother, I believe in miracles. We've interviewed so many of them here, and I consider myself in that category as well. Richie, how do you serve the recovery community? Yeah, I just do the things that were suggested to me when, when I was there. I, I show up at meetings and work with others. I be of service, you know, basic stuff that they taught me in year one. I still <laughs> try and do that. Because it still works. That formula that got us well is the same formula that will keep us well. Exactly. If not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> 100%. Let's not yeah. complicate this thing. Yeah, the only thing that, that's changed over time is you get a little bit more experience uh, with new things, being sober, like first time losing a job, first time being sick, first time getting divorced all those kind of things, wins and losses. Absolutely. And being able to move through those experiences in sobriety gives us some confidence that this too shall pass. Exactly. Like when 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 I was newly sober, you know, people 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 every time I would have some kind of a problem, people would tell me it's gonna be okay, everything's gonna work out. At the start, it was, it was hard to believe that because I had no evidence of things working out because my life at that point had been a series of disasters and all I could do was take the word for it and everything did seem to work out so far. Um, it's just you get more evidence the more time goes by. And you, like, you still have real life shows up too, you know, bad things happen. but. I haven't needed to get higher or drink for a long time. This is an absolute blessing. Life still gets lifey, doesn't it? Well, it does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my first year of sobriety, I broke my back in an accident. So, so uh, oh wow! Th- at the time, I thought that was one of the worst things that could happen to me. No doubt. So, yeah, like when I got sober, I had been a criminal for a lot of years. You know, and, and that's where, where my drinking and my, my drug taking took me. And then after I got sober, I decided to uh, to turn my life around, you know, no more misbehaving or any of that kind of stuff. And my plan when I got sober was to uh, start a construction company and, and, and that's what I thought my future was going to be. And then uh, I, I broke my back in an accident. I was working on a remodel and, and I a beam fell down and hit me and broke my back and I was a carpenter that was my trade and I wasn't able to do that anymore so 
I really didn't think things were going to work <laughs> out like that because my back is permanently damaged. No doubt. You know, but, but thing, things worked out and I ended up going in a totally different direction and doing all new things. We're going to talk all about those new things in that new direction in a hot minute. Last question, Richie, what does recovery mean to you? To me, recovery means changing from how I had been living. I was, I was pretty hopeless and, and desperate and powerless over the way, over my, my behavior and, and what I was doing. And now, now I, I'm not, I'm not powerless anymore. I, I have a choice whether or not I want to get high or drink or, um, I, I, I didn't have that choice before. Mm, absolutely. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm absolutely delighted to bring you my interview with Hollywood actor in person and long-term recovery, Richie Stevens. Richie Stevens is an Irish actor and writer who lives in Los Angeles, California. He is best known for playing villains on TV and in films, including Blue Bloods, MacGyver, Criminal Minds, and Days of Our Lives. His appearances in multiple Florence and the Machine music videos and his ability to do a broad range of accents 
He has appeared in over 100 stage and screen productions and is a member of Oscar winner Bobby Moresco's Actors Gym, an exclusive group of working actors and writers. He's been a circuit speaker in recovery groups, and he actively works with the homeless at the Midnight Mission and the Center in Hollywood. Richie can now add author to that impressive list of film, stage, and TV credits with his new book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, My Life in 12 Steps. Richie shares with us his journey to and through recovery to this point in his unique and compelling brand of storytelling, which is laced with distinctively dark humor and poignant moments that carry powerfully universal spiritual and recovery truths throughout a life story that's as captivating as it is inspirational and is proof positive that meaningful and long-term recovery is not just possible, but absolutely worth every ounce of effort it calls us to put forth. So listen up. Richie Stevens, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I cannot wait, brother, to hear your journey to and through recovery to this point, as well as all of those new directions you went into post-recovery and talk about your new book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. You are Irish Hollywood actor Richie Stevens with a impressive credit list, I would say. NCIS, Days of Our Lives, Criminal Minds, and Blue Bloods, just to name a few. Before we get started, Richie, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll get started. Thanks a million, uh, Charles. It's great to meet you, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Hello to everybody there. Um, so, yeah, I'm originally from Ireland. Born and raised, I came to America when I was about 22, and uh, I'm from the countryside in Ireland. And when, when I was growing up, it just seemed like everybody loved drinking. It's just what everybody did all the time. There wasn't a whole lot to do. Rains all the time. So I grew up around drinking. Um, the Irish are known for drinking, and that was definitely my experience when I was a kid. It was um, it was it was normality, you know. Um, uh, where 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 I grew up, it was like a sign of masculinity to be able mm. to drink a lot. You know, people would say, oh, he's a warrior for the drink. You know, like it was a good thing. So it was normal for me growing up. You know, I, I, uh, I was kind of a shy kid. I didn't, uh, I, I, I was, I was fairly shy and withdrawn when I, when I was little. And, you know, I kind of allowed myself to be pushed around and stuff like that when I was at school. And, you know, when I discovered drinking, that was my solution to how I felt like uh, I was about 15 when I had my first drink and I was at a concert with some of my friends and had a great day out. We saw the Beastie Boys and Garbage and Pulp and a bunch of these different bands. It was a great day and I was coming back on the bus and this girl offered me a can of beer to drink and I had never drank before and I said, I'll give it a shot. And, and I took took a few few drinks of that Heineken, and and uh, I didn't care what anybody thought about me anymore. I didn't I, I didn't have any fear. I didn't have any shyness. Nothing like that. And uh, and I and once I tried it, I said I want to do this all the time. This is 
this is what I want to do as often as I can, as much as I can. And because it, it made me something that I wasn't before. And then after that, I started drinking as often as I could, like every weekend. Um, but the problem was I couldn't drink like normal people, even from the beginning. Like some people could have a couple of scoops and go home and nothing happens. But with me, God knows where I would end up. It was, it was, uh, there was no limits to what could happen. But I kind of thought it was worth it. You know, I, um, in Ireland, the drinking age is 18. And I used to drink outside for a little while. And that was, that was cool at the beginning because it was just a chance to drink somewhere. It was kind of cold and wet in Ireland, so it's not much fun drinking outside. So I wanted to go to the bars with the grown-ups and the clubs. I, at the start, I used to try and sneak in. Like sometimes I'd come to the club and I'd climb in the window in the bathroom and <laughs> sneak in that way. And yeah, that's where it all began. It was fun and games. And then I got kicked out a few times and I realized I'm going to need an ID to get into places, a fake ID. So I started to make fake IDs. That was the beginning of it. Um, the police ID at the time, it, it was easy enough to copy, even for 15, 16 year old kids. So I started making them on my computer. Um, it was, it, it worked. I, I started getting into the club straight away. And, and uh, then when my friends started asking me, oh, can you make one for me? Can you make one for me? And so I made a few for friends as a favor. And then I, was, I used to hang around with this older kid and, and he came up with the idea that uh, we could start a business making fake IDs and he could sell them and I could make them. And that's what we did. I was making IDs for everybody in the school and I was making them for people in other schools. And I was getting all this drinking money where I could, I could afford to actually buy drinks in the bar instead of just getting them from a liquor store outside. And um, the, the thing just mushroomed, you know, it got out of control. And I think one of the other kids got caught by his parents and the parents brought, to the, brought it to the police. And then the police came looking for me over the IDs. My business partner snitched on me and, and uh, I was in deep trouble. I had to had to go in and talk to the cops. And I I pretended that I only met a few of them. It was like, uh, oh, I only met a few from my friends. I'm really sorry. I won't do it again. <laughs> and and uh, and they believed me. And they gave they, they I gave them back my ID. And, and I said, I no promise I'd never do it again. <laughs> and uh, and I got away with it. But by that stage, where I'm from in Calvin, everybody knew or everybody thought I was over 18 at that point. You know, I, people knew my name and what I drank, so I didn't need the IDs anymore by that mm. time. But that's where it all began with the drinking. I can so identify, and I think so many of us can, with the magical experience of that first drink. Certainly for me, the first time I drank, it unlocked things in me that prior to that moment, I was unable to unlock. Mm. It instantly eliminated the fear and anxiety and social awkwardness that plagued me prior to that moment. It allowed me to flirt with the girls and stick up to the guys. And all I wanted to do was get drunk again you know and it was off to the races after that and it very much sounds like your experience was 
of that same vein. And it was out of control, out of the gate. But I didn't care. Because to me, the benefits far outweighed the consequences, and some of them were not great. But the benefits still very much outweighed the consequences, and I was okay with it, right? And if I did some things that, you know, were a little crazy or I pissed some people off or ended up vomiting in somebody's sick, it was all worth it to me, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, the consequences didn't even seem like consequences. Right. I just thought they were, I just thought they were, oh, these are the things that happen when you play, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really care about the consequences. They were totally worth it at the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I grew up in a normal house. And, you know, my parents were normal enough people. They didn't, they weren't bad, you know, but I didn't care about how my behavior was affecting them. Like for me, I just thought it was something I needed to do. Mm. And pretty soon I started getting into the drugs after about a year, maybe of drinking. Uh, I really wanted to try smoking, smoking weed. In, like in Ireland back then, we only had hash. There was no weed back then. So um, it was in the I, 90s, right? Yeah, that would have been in the late 90s. Yeah. 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 Back then, all they had was hash, the stuff from Morocco. It's kind of hard, but it, it wasn't that strong. You know, w- once I tried it, it was kind of like discovering booze all over again. It was, you know, it was more chilled out. You know, you, you're not really going to end up in fights if, if you're smoking hash. But uh, I would I would do that to the extreme as well. Sometimes I would vomit, <laughs> you know, from smoking the weed. But it, it was cool uh, for me. It kind of... Uh, music tasted better and i thought it was making me more creative you know i really did at the time <laughs> yeah. but uh, but it was illegal you know and and i think it's still illegal in ireland but uh, I, I it was like a secret thing that that i was doing that was like you know i, I had to deal with some, the bad boys to buy it too so that was that was exciting as well like i got my first drug dealer and somebody somebody explained to me that if you buy like a bit extra for yourself, then you can sell some to the other people and you get yours for free. <laughs> I was, I was broke. I didn't have any money. So, I, so uh, I started doing that a little bit for a couple of years. That's all it was. And when I, I went to college when I was about 18 and um, I started hanging around with, with uh, a dude who was um, a little bit of a gangster where he came from and, and he got me into ecstasy. You know, I tried ecstasy when I was about 18 and, before then, I was I was scared to try ecstasy. I thought like it might kill me, you know, because there was the, all these stories in the, the newspapers about a kid who tried ecstasy one time and then they died, you know. And and I thought I was unlucky. I always felt like I was unlucky, so I thought that might be me. So I was always scared to take ecstasy. And uh, my buddy, his name was Tomo. We were in a bar one night, and I had a few drinks on me, and he pulls out this pill. It was, a little ecstasy pill that had 007 on it. And he goes, Mosh, do you want to try one of these ecstasy? I was like, no, 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 that could kill me, you know. He goes, Mosh, these are really light. Well, they would definitely won't kill you. Just try one. And uh, I trusted him, you know, he was a smart guy. And, and uh, I was like, no, it didn't kill Tomo. Maybe, maybe it might be okay. Because I had a few drinks in me too. So I was more open to the, the idea of giving it a try. So I went into the bathroom. I took out the pill. I was so scared to take the pill. I said, oh, maybe if I take a half, it won't kill me. 
And then I was like, oh, I'll take a quarter. Nobody's ever died off a quarter. <laughs> so I split <laughs> it in half. And I split it in half again. And, uh, and I popped it. And then I came back out. And it was like one of these disco bars, you know, like one of these nightclubs, loungy places with, you know, party music. And I came out and, and he says, Mush, did you take it? I said, I did, yeah. And then uh, about a half hour later, he, he checks in with me. He says, are you coming up on that pill yet? And I said, no. He goes, did you take it all? I'm like, uh, I only took a half. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't seem like I was a pussy. So if I told him I took a half, but I had really taken a quarter. And he says, Mush, these are really light. A half won't do nothing for you. It won't even come up. He says, go ahead and take the rest of them. So I'm like, okay. And I went back into the bathroom and I took the other quarter. <laughs> and then I came back again. And then I started to come up on the pill. I had this feeling I had never felt before. Like it was um it was like as if I I loved everybody and and I was in complete happiness. It was overwhelming. It was like nothing I had ever felt before, this ecstasy. And I just thought, fuck, why isn't everybody in the world on these every day? Like, there would be no wars or anything. You know, I thought this was, I was like, wow, why didn't I try this sooner? And then that first night, I ended up taking two of them all together. Uh, and uh, it, it, it felt like one of the best nights of my life. And, and at the beginning, it, like the come downs weren't even that bad at the beginning. Um, it just kind of felt like a little bit tired the next day, but I was the first person of my friends to start taking them. And oh yeah, I always had a bunch of friends and all my buddies started taking them as well. And they were like, oh, can you get some off Tomo for me? And uh, so I ended up like getting, getting maybe five or 10 pills at a time because all my friends would want them. And then uh, just as a favor. And then Tomo says, Mush, you're getting all these pills for everybody else. Why don't you get a bunch of them? And then you can sell them and make money off them. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's dealing. Like, that's, that's serious stuff. Like, if you get caught dealing, you're going to go to jail. Like, this isn't like fucking fake IDs or anything like that. You're, you're, you're in deep shit if, if, if you get caught doing that. And he says, Mush, you're already dealing them. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm doing, getting, doing it for free. And then he told me, he says, Mush, the law is, right, for sale or supply. So if you give a pill to somebody for free, you're still dealing them. They'll do you for dealing, the cops will. He says, you're already dealing them for free. I was like, shit, yeah, he's right, like, fuck. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it, it all made perfect sense to me. So then he started giving me 50 and 100 at a time. And, you know, it, it just mushroomed. Like, it got, it got to a point where within the space of a year, I was sending them to people all over the country. It just that's just how it happened. You know, I didn't I didn't I didn't decide I wanted to become Tony Montana or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It just uh, that's just the way it happened. And and I always had lots of friends, so I always ended up giving them to lots of people. But what happened as well, because I was I was selling them, they were really cheap if you buy them in bulk. So if they're cheap you end up taking a lot of them because yeah. you can afford to. And my tolerance started to go up. At the beginning, I could suck them. You know, I'd, I'd pop a pill and I'd suck it until it dissolved in my mouth. And, and then after taking them for a while, they were making me sick. I, I'd be gagging every time I even swallow them. And uh, it got to a point where I couldn't even come up without double dropping. I'd have to take two at a time to, to come up. 
and I was taking more and more of them. And, and it got to a point where within maybe six months or so, I was averaging maybe 10 or 15 on a night. Well, on a 24 hour period, I would, I would go to like raves and stuff like that. And, um, because they were cheap and readily available, I ended up take, taking loads of them, you know, and, that that got to a point where so when you're doing loads of ecstasy your highs are really high and your lows are really low i met this girl i was mad in love with her and you know before i took ecstasy i don't think i could i, I don't think i was ever in love with a girl i don't think yeah. i could have been i feel like it opened up my emotions like that were, were that hadn't been possible before and uh it didn't work out with me and the girl you know and, and i was kind of depressed about it and you know, uh, one day I decided to to get a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels and just drown my sorrows. You know, and I was in my I was in my house and I started uh, started drinking the JD. And the more of it I, I drank, the more depressed I got. And I decided, fuck it, I'm just going to kill myself. So uh, I started taking handfuls of ecstasy. I started with five in one go. You know, it it got really dark. Like I was putting out cigarettes on myself and. You know, I was a total mess. I was I was intent on killing myself. I ended up taking 30 pills. And uh, one of the guys who lived with me saw what I was doing. And uh, I had 100. And he took the other 70 and hid them on me. And he, he actually saved my life that first time. Um, only for him, I would be dead. <laughs> I didn't even have to go to the hospital or anything. Well, nobody brought me. <laughs> but I survived. And, you know, I started like, falling behind in school and then I got in trouble with the cops. I got caught dealing and I was really lucky I didn't go to jail and, you know, things just escalated, you know. Um, I started, I was doing things that I never thought I would do mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and, and I would always move the goalposts. At some point I would say, oh, I'd never take ecstasy. Then I did that and moved the goalposts. And then I was like, oh, I'd never deal drugs. And then I started doing that. I moved the goalpost. It, 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 things just kind of happened naturally like that. It was weird, you know. And um, at that point, I, I didn't really believe that I had a problem. Like, I, I thought that that was normal amounts that, that, that people took, you know. And um, fast forward a few years later, I ended up moving to America. And um, I got married really young. I got married to an American girl in San Francisco. I thought maybe if I moved to America, that would be the, the solution to my problems. Like maybe Ireland is the problem. The reason I drink so much and the reason I, I get into trouble is because I'm in Ireland. That's right. It know? can't be me. That's the problem. That's for no. sure. Yeah, I thought it was Ireland. I was like, yeah, would be like, uh, I thought maybe if I come to America, everything will be different, you know, and I came to America. And in some ways, it was different because uh, I didn't uh, I didn't go back into crime straight away. I started, I got into construction and I was still a drug user. Right? At that point, I had discovered cocaine. And cocaine was kind of like ecstasy, except the come downs weren't as bad and it wasn't so overwhelming. So that became my drug of choice when I, when I came to America. Because I had tried it in Ireland and the coke in Ireland wasn't that strong. It was okay. It, it tasted like more, but the stuff in America was like rocket fuel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And, and uh, so I would do it on a regular basis. And, you know, obviously my, my new wife didn't expect to be marrying a drug addict, mm. but that's, that's what I had become at that stage. And I, there was a lot of hiding, a lot of hiding it from her, you know. And, and um, 
after a couple of years in America, I got back to my old tricks again. You know, I, I ended up around recession time, maybe 2009, when, when there was a shortage of work and the amount of work that I had didn't provide me enough money to mm. keep the coke habit going. So I ended up dealing again. To this point, a pattern's really starting to show itself. Was this something that you were aware of as well? The pattern that with alcohol and then weed and then ecstasy and then coke, you're very much a brother from another mother in that alcohol was like the best thing ever. And all I wanted to do is keep doing that. And then I found weed and that was like my best friend for years a constant mm-hmm. companion and anything that then after that made me feel good, just tasted like more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was this pattern becoming apparent to you at this time? Um, Not at the time. Like mm-hmm. looking back now, I can even see it before I started drinking yes. and taking the drugs. When I was a little kid, I would always do stuff to zone out. Like, when I was when I was really young, I, I got into reading. I was a big reader, like and uh, and I would stay up half the night reading books. And I would go to school the next morning, and I would have a book hangover because I had <laughs> enough I had enough sleep. And it was the same thing with uh, video games when I was little as well. Like uh, anything to zone out and just uh, numb my feelings. Yeah. At the time, I just thought, ah, oh, these are just things I like doing. This is normal. And, you know, normal people read books and normal people play video games, but normal people don't stay up half the night playing video games or anything like that. So, no doubt I could relate because I look back at my dad, always said that I had the quickest hand of the cookie jar mm-hmm. when I was little. So, I was very much that way before I ever took a drink. Before mm-hmm. I ever took a drug, if it felt good, if it helped me get out of me and provided release and escape from me, mm-hmm. I went to excess. And I still have that in me. Seven plus years in sobriety, I still am looking to achieve that all elusive balance in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much default is. All in or all out, right? Yeah. In some ways, it can be a gift if you put it to something good. Because if you have an, an addict mind, like you can obsess about stuff. And that can be something very good or it could be something very bad. <laughs> very, very bad. No doubt yeah, about like it. I, in sobriety, I've seen people get addicted to exercise. <laughs> you know, even going to the gym, like it's kind of crazy. You're right about the exercise piece that that is something that even I need to continue to watch so that I don't go the other way on the bit and uh, turn that into an unhealthy addiction because anything to excess is not a good thing. One of the things that we practice and I practice in recovery is all things in moderation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try. It's it, it's a learning process. Like I'm sober for a little while now, so I kind of I know to watch out for that kind of stuff. But uh, I I didn't I wasn't born with that knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, brother. Tell me yeah. how this thing progresses. Then 
you're developing a bit of a cocaine habit. Uh, you're mm. in the construction business. Your wife at the time didn't realize she married a drug addict. What happens next? Well, yeah, around recession time, things got ties for the money. So uh, I ended up getting back to dealing again. And I started off, uh, I used to used to buy ounces of Coke off this Irish guy uh, called The Pony. And it wasn't very good Coke, you know, by American standards. So it was kind of slow to sell. And I used to, I used to buy my own supply for myself of these Asians. They had like really good Coke. And um, one day I had the brainwave to ask them, why don't I buy the bulk off them and sell their stuff? And, um, you know, the guys, they knew me for a couple of years, so they knew I was okay. And they said, well, we'll, we'll supply you on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, once you start buying it off us, you can't start getting it off anybody else. And I was like, why? And he said, because we have really good stuff. And then if you start selling bad stuff, people will say that it'll ruin our reputation. So that's how it started. I said, okay. And then he was like, there's one thing. If you ever snitch on us, we're going to kill your whole family. I was like, wow, okay. Well, I never snitched before. I'm not starting now. So, okay. You know? And then he said, well, if anybody messes with you, we'll be up there with machine guns. Said, wow. Okay. So then I found myself in this Asian gang, just, just like that. Wow. And, yeah. And, and the culture. I mean, you stuff. know, you're in the big time, Richie, when they're worried about quality control and they're deadly serious about it. Yeah, these guys were organized crime. They weren't like, they weren't a street gang, you know. But uh, but yeah, I trusted them. They trusted me, and I, I started started uh, working for them. And um, make a long story short, uh, I ended up almost killing somebody. There was um, we won't go into it right now, but somebody did something to someone I cared about, and I decided I was going to put out a hit on him. And I talked to the boys from my gang and, and uh, I said, would, would you kill this guy for money? And he and they said, uh, we won't kill somebody for personal or for personal reasons, only for business stuff. And uh, so then I had to find somebody else. And then I talked to this other guy. I knew he was like Norteño. He was like one of the Mexican mafia. And I asked him and he said he'd do it for five grand and have five grand. So, so I said, I'll do I, 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 two. I'll give you two. He's like, no, it's not enough money. I won't do it for two. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I, I'm trying to find the money to kill this guy. And um, I thought about robbing this. this there was this bar in San Francisco that, that uh, laundered money for terrorists. And I knew that they had a lot of cash behind the bar. So I was going to stick this place up as well. But I couldn't get somebody to do it with me. And all these other harebrained schemes to try and get the money. And uh, in the end, Joe rings me back and he got a DUI and he said he was short on cash. He said he'd do it for two. <laughs> so, so he said, you have to, you have to provide the gun though. I'm not, not spending my money on the gun. You know, it's only 2000. So I said, I'd get him, get him a gun. And I talked to another friend and, and uh, he said he could give me a gun. And I had been awake for a few days. I was doing loads of coke and um, drove down to get the gun off this guy. And, and when he saw me, he's like, this fool is like messed up. It wouldn't be safe to give him a gun. Like, so I ended up leaving without the gun. 
I started driving back home and uh, I'd been awake for days and I had coke in the glove compartment. I had another gun under my seat. It was a legal one. <laughs> if you kill somebody, you can't use your own gun. You have, to, you have to use an untraceable gun. So I had my own gun under the seat. I'm driving home and then the cops started following me. And uh, I'm like trying to act natural. I was all sweaty and scared. And, and they followed me for about 20 blocks. And then the lights came on and mm. then the siren. And I was like, oh, my heart was coming through my chest. And I thought, this is it. And then they turned around and went back the other way. They must have got a call on, uh, <laughs> they must have got a call on, on the radio. And I pulled over and I nearly had a heart attack. I smoked like five cigarettes. And, uh, and I said, I'm not going to jail for killing this fool. Uh, and then I decided to go to Australia. <laughs> so I moved to Australia. Uh, I thought San Francisco was the problem. <laughs> Richie, by the way, you know you're in rough shape when the guy that's going to sell you the untraceable illegal guns like, no, man, you're not in no shape, right? Like, you know you're in yeah. rough shape when that guy is like, nah, I can't sell you this. You're in too rough a shape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a miracle I didn't get pulled over that time. And I, I literally moved to Australia. I was never going to come back again. And make a really long story short, I hated Australia. And I came back after a few months. And, you know, by this stage, I had I had two kids. And I missed my kids. And I decided to come back to America to give them another go again. And then I was suicidal again. And, uh, you know, even though I was a criminal, I used to be a carpenter. I was pretty good, even though I was drinking. I, I worked with these so, excuse me, sober Irish guys, and um, you know, he used to always ask them questions about about going to the meetings. And uh, one of the guys, this guy, he he ended up saving my life. His name was Bernard, or Americans would call him Bernard. <laughs> Bernard. So, uh, <laughs> Bernard, yeah. But we say <laughs> we say Bernard. So uh, this guy Bernard had given me his number. And he says, "If you ever want to get sober." Give me a call. So for some reason, after that that latest time I was suicidal, um, I decided to give him give him a call. It was like it was really scary. Like I knew I had a problem, you know. I, but but I, I thought there was something else wrong with me because I used to be depressed all the time, quick to anger, irritable, all these kind of feelings I used to have, and. When I had no understanding of what an alcoholic or an addict is. I just thought it was someone who couldn't handle their shit. I didn't realize that being an addict or an alcoholic, you have all these kind of feelings. So I thought there's something else wrong with me. Maybe I'm depressed or maybe I'm bipolar or manic depressant or some shit. You know, I, I thought I had some kind of a mental problem. I knew I had an issue with the coke and the booze, but I thought there was something else as well. And for some reason, I, the, the idea came to me, maybe if I can stay sober, I won't want to kill myself anymore. And uh, because I had tried staying sober on my own before mm -hmm. this, and I had periods where I could do okay. Like I didn't mm -hmm. drink every day until the very end. You know, sometimes I could put weeks and even months together without, without getting higher drinking. And because I, I thought an alcoholic drinks every day and I don't drink every day, so I'm not an alcoholic. And I used to play these games with myself before this to, to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic. I knew that alcoholics drink at home. So I never drank at home, always at the bar. You know, I knew that alcoholics drink in the morning. I, I wasn't an alcoholic, so I never drank in the morning. And I suffered these hangovers for years. And then I found out after I got sober that 
if you drink in the morning, it takes away your hangover, <laughs> you know, but I didn't want to be an alcoholic. So, so I, I had played these games with myself to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic before. What's Which it? is very interesting because I did the same thing, Richie. And you know what? People that don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol don't have to prove to themselves or anybody else that they don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they but, don't have but, to do that. They don't have to play those mind games like I like bananas. They're tasty. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a problem with bananas and I don't have mm -hmm. to convince myself that I don't have a problem with bananas. And I don't have yeah. to say, well, if I don't eat bananas in the morning, then I definitely don't have a problem with bananas because I don't have a problem with them. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. You're not making deals with yourself. Okay. Right. No, no, no bananas for a month. Exactly. You know? <laughs> oh, that's it. So, so the, anyway, the idea came to me that maybe maybe if I can stop drinking, I, I won't want to kill myself because I know a lot of times when I'm drinking, I feel like killing myself. And I thought, maybe if I could just stop drinking, I won't want to kill myself as much. So it was like really, uh, you know, even though I was like a criminal, I, I was too scared to go to a meeting on my own. That was like, I'd walk around with a gun and do all kinds of bad things. But but the prospect of walking into a meeting on my own kind of scared me. So that's why I had to call Bernard. And I rang him up. I says, uh, I says uh, Bernard. And he goes, well, Richie, how are you doing? I said, Bernard, I think I have a problem with the drink and the drugs. And he goes, I'll pick you up this evening. And he fucking, he, he came and he picked me up that night. Uh, and he had another dude with him. And he brought me to my first meet. Mm. And, and uh, at that point, I knew I couldn't do it on my own. So I was, I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. You know, I, I, uh, I was willing to say, okay, I know how to run my life. And I, I asked. I asked this guy, he ended up be, becoming my sponsor eventually. And, you know, we, I, my first experience at the meetings, I didn't want the Irish people to know that I had a problem, right? I didn't mind the Irish people knowing that I, I was a drug dealer, but I didn't want them to know that I couldn't handle my shit. Like that, that was embarrassing to me. So that's how my head was working at the time. I didn't want the Irish people to know that I had a problem. And I knew that there was meetings at the Irish Center in San Francisco. So I really didn't want to go to the Irish Center. And I got into the car with Bernard and this other guy. And uh, I was really nervous. It was all quiet. I was in the back and there in the front and we were driving. I says, Bernard, where are we going? He says, we're going to the Irish Center. <laughs> I said, like, oh, fuck. You know, because then all the Irish people were going to know I had a problem. And, uh, but I, I, you know, the car was already moving. I couldn't get out of it. So I was, I was like, oh, fuck, all these Irish people are going to know I have a problem. And, uh, and it was really quiet and I was on edge. And Bernard turned around and he says, did you bring your passport? I said, what? He says, did you bring your passport? I'm like, no, what the hell do you want my passport for? I thought it was a setup with the cops. The cops were going to be waiting for me and deport me. And, uh, and then the two of them just started laughing. They were just they were just messing with me, <laughs> and uh, Bernard had this laugh. He was kind of like Santa Claus. He's like, <laughs> like this, and uh, I was like, "You fuckers!" And and uh, yeah, so that broke the eyes. After that, I, I was a little bit more relaxed. And then they they parked the car, and I you know I wanted to go in there. I didn't want anybody to see me going in there because it was embarrassing. Like, fuck, what if somebody sees me going into a meeting? This guy stopped me at the door. I says, well, how's it going? Are you new? 
am I new? And I was thinking, how the hell does this guy know I'm new? You know, he doesn't know me. But but the thing is, if you've been going to meetings, everybody knows everybody because you go to the same ones every week. So if there's somebody new, of course you know it's a new person. This hadn't occurred to me at the time. And and the other thing that hadn't occurred to me, if you're brand new going to meetings, you probably look like shit. You've been going through like years of abuse. And and uh, so I, I'm sure I wasn't looking good that day. So it didn't occur to me how he knew I was new. And, uh, and I says, uh, yeah, I am new. And he said, uh, do you think you have a problem with drinking? I says, yeah. He says, what makes you say that? I said, well, I tried to kill myself a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he looked at me and he says, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I went in and, uh, and I sat in the room and it was like a bunch of men. It was a men's meeting, all these Irish fellas. And I just wanted to sit at the back and keep her low profile. Like I didn't, didn't want to be telling people my business or any of this kind of shit. But everybody was very nice. They said, hey, they've introduced themselves. And, you know, people were giving me their numbers and stuff like that. I'm thinking, oh, they give me their number for the game? What? You know, <laughs> I didn't really know what was going on. And, uh, and I was sitting at the back and then they started the meeting. And the, the person who was running the meeting, the secretary, they said, uh, have we any new members here today? And, and Bernard started looking at me and so did the other guy. And, and so there was no denying that I was doing. So I put up my hand like this. And, uh, and then the guy pointed at me and I said, my name's Richie. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And everybody started clapping. Couldn't believe it. I was like, you people know who I am? Like, what, like the things I've done? Like, they didn't give a shit. Some of them did know and they didn't care. All they cared about is there's a new man here. Mm. And we want to help them. Mm. And, and I couldn't believe that. I, I was not expecting to be welcomed. Mm. No strings attached, all this kind of stuff. And, and then I sat, I was sat there and I was like, wow, this is uh, maybe just my work, you know. And uh, during the meeting, a bunch of people shared and they were, they were talking about, they started to talk about being restless, irritable and discontented. And when I heard that, I was like, fuck, that's how I feel all the time when I'm not drinking. You know, and and uh, and before that, I, I kind of thought maybe I, I might be crazy, you know, because I didn't understand what happens mentally to someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict. So then I was like, wow, there's more of them. These people have the same kind of feelings as I do, you know. I heard a couple of other shares and I could really relate. And I was like so pumped and excited when that, when that meeting was over. I was thinking, wow, I found a solution like, for my problem. And then at the end of the meeting, the boys all stood up and they held hands in a circle. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and uh, because these were Irish construction workers, like tough men holding hands. Like, and I was like, what the fuck? And then they started to pray. Uh, I looked, there was on the wall, they had 12 steps. And all I could see was God, 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 God. And then they said a prayer. And I was like, uh-oh, this is a mistake. <laughs> I was like, because I was raised Catholic. I, I used to be a Catholic, you know, growing up. I was an altar boy, all that kind of shit. But at that point in my life, I was an atheist. I thought there couldn't be a God. All the bad things that happened to me and other people that I knew, I, I thought there's no such thing as God. It's, it's like Santa Claus. It's just something for children, you know. So uh, when, when, when I seen the praying and the holding hands, I just thought this is a mistake. I'm never coming back here. So I left. We went downstairs. 
And we got into Bernard's truck and he was all excited, you know. I said, I sat into the passenger seat and he says, well, what did you think? I says, what the fuck is all that God shit? And he goes, what God shit? I said, the whole, holding hands and praying. Like, I said, I don't want to join no religion. I don't want to join no cult. And he looked at me and he says, never mind that shit. I said, huh? He says, you don't have to believe in anything. I said, well, we're all praying and holding hands. He says, there's fucking Buddhists and Muslims and atheists and everything in these rooms. You don't have to believe anything. Just shut your mouth and come back to the meetings. So once I heard that, I was like, okay, I can come back because I, I don't want to be a Catholic again, <laughs> you know, and because uh, that scared me, the praying. I was like, yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is a mistake. That's what I thought. And then, but once you told me I don't have to believe anything, I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'll come back. I started going to all these meetings. I was going every day. He said, go every day. So I was going every day. And then he, like, uh, I said, how does this work? Like, uh, how do I stay sober? And he said, well, we don't drink one day at a time. And we work the steps together. And uh, so we started to work on the steps. And, and uh, step one was admitted you were powerless over drugs and alcohol and your life was unmanageable. And I knew I was powerless over it from when I was a teenager because I knew that this stuff was so good. I need to drink it all the time, you know, but I never really acknowledged that my life was unmanageable. Even though I had try tried to end my life a few times, <laughs> it didn't occur to me until 2010 that it really was unmanageable, you know? And, and uh, so that was easy enough for me. And uh, step two was came to believe that a power greater than you could re restore you to sanity. And I, I was an atheist. I didn't want to believe in God or anything like that. So one of the guys, he was an American boy called Kevin. Kevin says, you don't have to believe in God. The group can be your higher power. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Uh, you know, the group isn't God, you know. So, so the group was my first higher power. And uh, it was an Irish, well, he was an American guy called Pat McGuire. And Pat was, he was like me. He was a former gangster, but he was sober for a long time. And a really good dude. I respected him a lot. I used to hang out with Pat sometimes. And Pat, Pat says to me one day, he says, did you find a higher power? And I said, yep. The group is my higher power. And uh, he says, the group is a stupid higher power. <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, how come? And Pat, Pat says to me, he goes, if the group dies in a plane crash or if they all drink again, your fucking higher power is fucked. It's gone. I was like, shit, he's right. The group is a stupid higher power. <laughs> and, then, and then this was San Francisco. So there was loads of like hippies up in San Francisco. So I heard one of these hippies saying that their higher power was a tree. So I said, Pat, my higher power is going to be a tree. And Pat says to me, if your higher power is a tree, I'm going to get my chainsaw. I'm going to cut your higher power down. I'm going to burn it with gasoline. I'm like, fuck, Pat, that's not very nice, you know? And I heard, I heard some other smart ass saying that their higher power was a doorknob. So I said to Pat, I said, uh, okay, I'm going to have a doorknob. And Pat says to me, if your higher power is a doorknob, I'm going to get my shotgun and I'm going to shoot your fucking higher power. I was like, fuck, Pat. Like, what kind of a higher power is safe from you? <laughs> and, uh, he, said, he said, the best higher power is something you can't see. And then nobody can fuck with it. You don't even need to know what it is. Just pick something. And I said, 
okay, once it's not Jesus or anything like that, I definitely don't want it to be Jesus. He goes, no, you don't even need to know what it is. That's okay. And then I said, well, what are you supposed to do with this higher power? And he said, whenever you feel like drinking or getting high, you just ask this higher power for help. And because uh, when I was newly sober, I was missing the drink and I was missing the Coke. Every time something annoyed me, I would want to drink. If it was the wife or the people at work or someone in traffic, I, I was constantly wanting to drink because that was my medicine. Yeah. And, and they took away my medicine. And now I'm trying to like live life without this thing that I had for so yeah. long that was making me feel good. So Pat told me, he says, every time you have these feelings, just pray to the higher power and the feelings will go away. And I was skeptical about this, but I, I, I really respected Pat. So if Pat's telling me this, I'll fucking try it. So I, I, I started to try it and it worked. Mm. I, every time I'd have these feelings or cravings, I'd pray to this higher power. I didn't even know what the hell it was. And, uh, and the feelings would go away. And Pat says to me, he says, it works even better if you get down on your knees and pray. He says, every day, get down on your knees, pray for your higher power to keep you sober. And at the end of the day, you, you thank your higher power. So I started doing this praying every day, and the cravings completely went away. And uh, I don't even know what the fuck I was praying to. All I know is that it works. And it, it has been working for nearly 12 years now. I know how to explain that. Like, it's either one of two things for me, right? It's either the higher power is real because mm-hmm. I couldn't stop drinking or either it's, it's real or it's a mind fuck. And, and, and if you do it, just the act of doing it takes away the obsession. So uh, once I tried that, it, w- it was crazy. And then they said step four was make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. So what does that mean? They said that. Uh, you got you got to write down all the people, places, and things that make you angry. And I was like, no problem. I was I was eager to do that because I thought I was a good guy, and a lot of people had fucked me over, and I, I, was, I was happy to get it down on paper, you know. And uh, and and then there was a last column that said, <laughs> "What was your part in it?" And uh, a lot of times that one was blank, you know. Like for example, there was one guy on there. His name was Ollie. And when I was back in Ireland, Ollie had been one of my employees who was selling ecstasy for me. And he got caught by the cops and he set me up. So uh, Ollie was on there. I'm angry at Ollie. What's the reason? Snitched on me to the cops. And then in my part, it was empty. So I'm reading it to Bernard. Step five was read it to your sponsor. I was reading it to Bernard. And Bernard says, what was your part in I said, I didn't have a part in this. I was a stand-up guy. I never ratted on nobody. He goes, weren't you dealing drugs? I says, yeah, so? He says, aren't drugs illegal? I was like, yeah. He says, if you weren't fucking selling drugs, you wouldn't have got fucking caught. That's your part. And that had totally escaped me. <laughs> I, I, I always thought that I was just a good guy and I was a victim. And then doing this work with Bernard, it kind of helped me to, to see that I'm not a victim in everything. You know, we went through a lot of that different stuff and we went through the, the rest of the steps and, and, you know, it was more of the same kind of experience just like that. And, and uh, make a long story short, uh, 
I was almost finished the steps and then I broke my back in an accident. Uh, I was just getting my life together and I, I wanted to set up a construction company and uh, I got my license and I was working on this remodel and a beam fell down and hit me, knocked me off the scaffold and, and broke one of my discs and herniated the other one. And I was like, no, like I thought everything was supposed to be good when I got sober. Like, um, I, I, I thought the deal was if I get sober, everything is going to be fine. And uh, I ended up leaving construction. And then I went to a meeting one time and a girl that I knew at the meeting, I lost all my money. I didn't know what to do with my life. I was like really feeling sorry for myself. And I was thinking about uh, either drinking again or going back to deal it. And uh, this girl says, she says, you should be a model. I'm like, model? <laughs> I was like 30 years old at that stage. And I have like fake teeth and, you know, I had my nose broken a bunch of times. And these are bite marks on my nose. And I was like, model? And uh, what I was, I was, I was broke and I, I was willing to try something. So I sent out some pictures to a modeling agency and this little shitty modeling agency signed me. So I started to do a little bit of modeling. And, uh, and then a guy saw me on a modeling website and he asked me to be in his film. It's just a low budget short film. And uh, I ended up playing a gangster in the, in the short film. He, he, he says to me, don't, get, don't get, take this the wrong way, but you have that look about you. <laughs> and I, 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 didn't, I didn't tell him that I really used to be one, but, but uh, I, I have really enjoyed that experience on, on the phone. And then I, I decided, I was like, why don't I just become an actor now? Because I, I really enjoyed it. So I, I uh, started taking classes and, and I started to audition and I started to book roles. And then a year later, I moved to L.A. and, and I'm still here. This is, I'm like nine years here in L.A. And... The roles have been getting bigger, and and that's that's how I got into acting. It was it was bizarre. I never in a million years thought I would end up doing this. Richie, so much of what you related, I can identify with, especially the God piece. My mom died when I was eleven years old, so I wrote off mm -hmm. God at that moment. Mm -hmm. I want no part of a God that's going to take my mom away. No thanks. And I was mm -hmm. of two minds: either God exists and he's an asshole. Mm -hmm. Or he doesn't. Yeah. And then confronted with steps two and three, I had to wipe the slate clean. And I was listening to a lot of Joe and Charlie at the time, and they just kept saying, run the experiment. Don't worry about analyzing this thing. Just do it. And so mm -hmm. I just wiped the slate clean and started praying to this God that I had zero concept of. And it was working. My life was getting better. Prior to that, being sober was an extremely trying experience, and it always ended with restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness, and I felt like I had no choice but to drink again, and that would become unmanageable. So that vicious cycle of being sober without a solution and that becomes unmanageable and then going back to the drinking and drugging and that becomes unmanageable. And the missing piece was the higher power for me. Mm -hmm. I should know it. We don't get sober for the prizes. That's no, not what this I, thing's about. I, right. I didn't think there was going to be any prizes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
I just thought it was going to be Carpenter who built houses in San Francisco. A hundred percent. And that gets yeah. taken away from you. And all of a sudden, this new path becomes available to you. And you're living a life that you would have never have dreamed of prior to entering recovery, which is absolutely amazing. And now you've got a new book out. And I want to ask you a few things about this new book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Why did you write the book and what do you hope people get out of it? Okay, well, um, so since I came into recovery, I never stopped going to meetings. This whole time I've been going all the time and I'm involved in in, uh, in my sobriety, the same as I was at the beginning. And uh, people ask me to talk a lot at meetings. You know, there's not many Irish people here in L.A. So, like, he talks funny. It's a good story. So <laughs> I, got, I, I ended up speaking maybe 50 times at meetings over the last 11 years at least. And uh, a lot of times after my, my share of people tell me, oh, you should write a book, you know. And, and eventually I decided to, to write one. And the way I, I met John and Dave, my partners, John Altshuler and Dave Krinsky, um, it was weird because uh, I wasn't even looking to partner with them on my book. I was working on the book and a buddy of mine, another actor friend of mine, he, he had a comedy he had been developing and he wanted, uh, he wanted to get it made. So he asked me to help him reach out to some producers. And because it was a comedy, I reached out to John and Dave because they're two of the biggest writers and producers in comedy. They created, they're co-creators of Silicon Valley and they were the showrunners on King of the Hill. And they wrote a movie called Blades of Glory starring Will Ferrell. So I reached out to the, the, the boys uh, for my friend's project I just emailed them. I never met them before, ever. And uh, I said, hey, I'm working with my friend on this great project. Would you be interested? And it turned out to be really nice. They met us. And, and uh, that project wasn't a fit. But uh, John said, I like you guys. You guys are cool. Just uh, Maybe we could work on something. Keep sending me stuff. And I sent him another couple of things. And he wasn't interested. And then I was pretty much finished writing the book. And I sent that to him. And and he said, let's meet again. And we met again. And he had no idea that I used to be a gangster because, you know, I'm not, I'm not threatening, you know, I'm friendly. And then I told him some stories and uh, he was, he was like, wow, this is, this is great. Do you want a partner on it? I was like, okay. And because uh, the idea was to make it into a TV show. And uh, we, uh, we, we, we got in contact with a book agent and the book agent read the book. Like my original book was all the experiences that happened to me from 15 to 30. It was huge. It was like 430 pages, my original manuscript. And she, she read it twice and she's like, wow, this is crazy. It's like, it's so crazy. It couldn't be real, but it's so detailed. It might just be, you know, and, uh, and John says, oh, this is real. She says, I don't know how to sell this. So John got the idea of rewriting the book in the format of the 12 steps because the 12 steps is how I got sober. So we rewrote the book again. It's just under 200 pages. It's more of an easy read. It's not so heavy. And uh, so we rewrote the book together again. We got a book deal and it's being released um, on May 20, 24th of this year, 2022. And uh, it's going to be developed into a, into a TV series as well. I love the format. A format 
after my own heart, the 12 steps, which is amazing. I love that it's an easy and light read. That suits me, Richie, very, very much. So that's amazing. And that it's going to be made into a TV show because I think journeys of recovery and everything that leads us to that, it's a gold mine. Let's just be mm-hmm. honest. It's a it's an absolute gold mine. So that's all tremendous stuff, Richie. We've got some closing questions. Are you ready? Yep. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Uh, I do the things that, that was shown to do in the, in the first year. I pray and I meditate. I write out gratitude lists. Every day I write down 12 things I'm grateful for, and I send it to all my sponsees, and they send them back to me. And uh, So I go to meetings, I work with others, I do service, and, uh, and I ended up trying a couple of, a few different 12-step programs because there's a lot of things wrong with me. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I go to a few different meetings and I'm involved in all of them. Absolutely amazing. Meditation is key for me. Gratitude is key for me. And they're practices. So all of what you said makes all the sense in the world. And it's the stuff that got us well. And it's the stuff that keeps us well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. What book or piece of recovery literature, or as the cool kids call it, quit lit, had the biggest impact on your recovery? Mm, the big book. Mm. I read the big book and it was it was weird. It was like, how does this guy know about my <laughs> life? <laughs> Absolutely. What is the best piece of advice you received in recovery? I got a lot of good advice in recovery. Um, best piece hmm probably one day at a time because when I was new I was trying to figure out oh my god how am I going to not drink for a year how am I going to not drink when my parents die how am I going to not drink when my kids get married in 20 years time you know and my sponsor said to me he says we, he says, we, we don't worry about tomorrow we only worry about today, one day at a time. So one day at a time was, was something that really helped me relax and not worry about the future. And the longer I'm in recovery, the more one day at a time really makes sense for me. Because regardless of how much time I've accumulated, it's about today. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I was the way it was put to me when I was new, especially, like, oh, how am I going to stay sober for all this time? And he just said, we just won't drink today. Maybe we won't want to drink t- tomorrow, but we can, anybody can do one day. So, so we'll just do today. Absolutely. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery? I've had a lot of them. Um, one of the biggest was breaking my back and losing my livelihood. Mm-hmm. That was a big one. I got divorced. That was hard. I've had my heart broken. Um, I've lost friends. I have a lot of dead friends. Yeah. Like if you hang around for a little while, um, you, 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 people, cl- and if you're involved in the meetings, people close to you will die. Yeah. And, uh, and I have a lot of, I have a lot of those dead friends, unfortunately, and sponsors. Yeah. 
that for me is the thing that still is the hardest to wrap my head around in terms of why me and why not them and why didn't they make it? Yeah, it's like, why do I get this gift and they didn't, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. What is your greatest success in recovery? Um, maybe it's not an obvious one, but uh, I feel like I'm a good dad. You know, I love my kids and they were they were toddlers when I when I got sober and other teenagers. And, and uh, I just try to be a good dad as best as I can be to them. That is absolutely amazing. And without question, one of the greatest gifts recovery can give us is being good parents, being good sons, being good partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or somebody else for? Well, I have a whole book full of stuff. <laughs> that's, that's not too hard of a one. <laughs> Obviously, I have, I have a lot of things I regret doing that I would never have done if I was sober. But they happened and there's nothing I can do about them. All I try and do is um, live a better life now today than I, I did, you know. And that's that living amend that we have the opportunity to make on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. So doing the best you can now with what you have. And having some self-forgiveness around that and giving ourselves some grace around that. And that's a process. Yeah. And for me, when I was new in, in sobriety, I always, when I heard other people sharing, I always felt like I was the worst person in the room. And I, I usually was, you know, <laughs> like uh, not a lot of people who go to the meetings have done the things I, do, I have done. So I would hear about these soccer moms and, and, you know, people who hadn't done anything too crazy. And, I, and, and one time after a few months of being sober, I heard a guy tell his story and he was a hell's angel. And, and he had been a hell's angel and he had a similar story to me. And when I heard that, that actually helped me a lot because I, 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 before that time, I thought that there was nobody as bad as me in, in recovery. And, and so maybe, maybe my story could help somebody who, who uh, feels that way. And that is the amazing power of recovering out loud and sharing our recovery stories is that it gives others the opportunity to be able to identify who up until that moment felt just like you felt and absolutely like I felt, which was if you knew the things I had done, if you knew the real me, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't want to hang around with me. And you would understand why I feel so broken and so different. But then we hear somebody who felt like we felt, drank and used like we did, and did the things that we did, and they got better. Mm -hmm. And then for the first time, Really, we believe we can get better, too. And that is the power of recovering out loud. And that's what you're doing here, Richie, on the Way Out podcast. And you're doing it with your book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, which is absolutely amazing. 
Here is our final question. What song symbolizes recovery to you, Richie? What song symbolizes recovery? Because um, I've never even thought about this one. Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling. Yeah! <laughs> that is, is a tremendous selection, it is, Richie. It's, it has been... Bernard explained it to me when I got sober. He said, sobriety is like a graph that's going up into the profit. It goes up and down, but mostly up. <laughs> so, yeah. That will be added to the Way Out Podcast's curated Spotify playlist, a brand new edition, a tremendous selection, Richie. So go ahead and check the show notes right now for a link to that, for a link to the Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, a link to how to get more information on Richie and the work that he's doing, as well as Richie's recovery advice and book recommendation. Richie, thank you, brother, so much for recovering out loud with us here on the Way Out podcast. It's been an absolute blast. You too, Charles. Thanks a million for inviting me on. And anybody who hasn't heard Charles before or is interested, please like and subscribe to his podcast. That helps. Thank you, brother. It does indeed. If you like what we do, give us a five-star review. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.